You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is the sixth in a series of lectures entitled The Logic of Religion. This particular lecture is called Modern Interpretations of Religion. I am Jude Doherty, Dean of the School of Philosophy of the Catholic University of America. I am working as a professional philosopher, although my texts are derived largely from persons who would be described as theologians. In earlier segments of this series, we looked at classical interpretations of religion. That is, religion as understood by Greek authors, by Roman authors. But with the advent of Christianity, we move from natural to revealed religion. And that creates a number of problems unknown in antiquity. Revealed religion of its very nature presents truths about God and about man's relation to God which are inaccessible to natural reason. Those truths are accepted on faith. We have briefly analyzed the nature of faith as understood by the church fathers, particularly by Augustine. But then we examined it in greater detail through the writings of Thomas Aquinas. For Thomas, it makes sense to believe. Faith is not irrational. He provides a rational preamble, largely drawing upon classical authors. Plato, Aristotle, others had reason to the existence of something that Thomas immediately identifies as God or as a name of God, if you will. Thomas spends a great deal of time in his Summa Theologia setting out the traditional arguments for the existence of God. So that when one approaches then the content of Revelation, one is coming with a carefully worked out conception of God. If reason can move from the things of experience and by accounting for those in terms of a being self-existent, the cause of existence of things, reason can also move from perfections found imperfectly in the world of experience, especially in human nature. So Thomas can end by affirming of God intelligence will. He can say of God that which leads to a recognition of God's providence, his benevolence, etc. For Thomas, we know a lot about God before the revelation provided through the sacred scriptures, especially through the Gospels. What we don't know from reason is the triune nature of God. We don't know from reason that Christ is God. We accept those truths on faith, but that faith makes sense. It's not a leap into the dark. 
The problem of faith and reason has been solved differently by other authors. Luther and Calvin were skeptical with respect to the power of reason accepted in antiquity and accepted by Aquinas. Luther's doctrine of the fall led him to believe that the intellect of a human being was darkened so that reasoning to the existence of God was impossible. What we know about God is as a result of reason informed by faith. And for Luther, if one emphasizes natural knowledge of God, then faith becomes less the gratuitous act that he believes it to be. Faith is a commitment on our part to the Word of God, to Christ, and no reason can bring us to that. It's a gratuitous act. We find that in Calvin, and we'll be discussing it a bit in Kierkegaard, whom I take to be a extenuation, as it were, of that notion that God is inaccessible to human reason. Kierkegaard would have little regard for what we would call natural religion. I think we will find in discussing religion that what one makes of the scriptures depends in a large extent on what one brings to them. If one brings classical learning to the scriptures, one is apt to end up with the fathers of a church, medieval doctors, one is apt to end up within a Catholic interpretation of Christianity. If one rejects those sources, one is apt to have a Protestant mind. The Jewish mind, of course, rejects the divinity of Christ and does not participate in the reason-faith debate as it is found in Christianity, though it has its own set of problems. The secular mind, of course, rejects it all. Religion is interpreted as something man created to satisfy an inner human need. Religion becomes something like poetry if it's not reduced to morality. Aquinas would separate morality from religion, and we, if we examine the writings, particularly of the Stoics, we would find a high-minded morality that in many respects was simply endorsed by the fathers of the church in the Christian period. There is a difference between Protestant, Catholic, and secular mindsets. I should say Protestant, Catholic, and Jew within the category of revealed religion and then the secular mind rejecting it all. Now when I say Protestant, Catholic, and Jew, it may be that certain uh, minds that are Protestant, Catholic, and Jew resemble each other more than they resemble other minds in their respective confessions. The lines are not neat. A Catholic, a Lutheran, a Jewish scholar may be in more agreement than, let's say, a certain type of Catholic with other Catholic minds. So the distinctions blur, but there are distinctions to be made. We hear a lot about ecumenism. Well, one cannot reconcile contradictories. There is such a thing as a Catholic mind, a Protestant mind, a Jewish mind, and you can't bring them all together because they contradict each other. 
uh, doesn't prevent religious-minded people from cooperating in the practical order, but you can't affirm and deny it the same respect. The problem we're confronted with immediately is the faith-reason problem. And as I said, Thomas places a great deal of weight on the ability of the human mind to know something about God independently of the truths presented about God through revelation. So that the assent to the, let's say, teachings of Christ are reasonable upon the part of the believer. Now I would like to, in the tradition of Luther and Calvin, spend just a minute or two with Soren Kierkegaard, who articulates the notion that faith is a leap in the dark, and that's what it should be. In the long line of theologians, stretching from Luther to Brunner, Barth, Bultmann, Kierkegaard holds a unique place. He was the first to state, in more or less a modern form, the case against rationalism. Now, rationalism in this context means that emphasis on a rational approach, a preamble to the faith itself. The rationalism that Luther was opposed to was the rationalism of Aristotle and the medieval scholastics. What Kierkegaard had to contend with was Hegel. And I might mention, before getting into Kierkegaard, that with Hume, David Hume, in the 18th century, his dates are 1711 to 1776, with Hume, we get for the first time in history a systematic consideration of religion from a philosophical point of view. Now, Thomas works as a philosopher, but he has no treaties uh, specifically as a philosopher on the nature of religion. Hume is followed by Kant and Hegel on the philosophical scene, and we will find that Hume, Kant, and Hegel all had highly developed systematic studies of religion. And these philosophers, of course, are very much studied in our own time. There is a Hegel Society, there is a Kant journal, there is a Kant Society, there is a, well, we will see even a Kierkegaard Society, a Hume Society. These meet annually at least. So these philosophers do not belong, as it were, to an ancient past that has no relevance on how we think about things today. They are very much studied today, and they have enlisted over the centuries many, many disciples who work from their particular vantage point. But now Kierkegaard. For Kierkegaard, faith is not a matter of belief. Religion is not a rational affair. He makes in his philosophy a basic distinction between what he calls the world of universals. This is the world of scientific generalizations. Mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, even philosophy would fit into that category. And as opposed to that, there is the world of inwardness, the world of the subject. Whereas philosophy, especially that of the Aristotelian tradition, 
teaches us to become objective. Christianity teaches us to become subjective, to face our existence and to cease avoiding it in scientific generalizations. And this, Kierkegaard believes, is not easy. We are constantly tempted to fit ourselves into categories, to speak of ourselves in heroic terms borrowed from patterns we've seen elsewhere. We often say, I'm like that, or you know, I'm part of this. We attempt to understand ourselves in terms of these scientifically, perhaps philosophically, advanced categories. The matter of God's existence is an objective question. But Kierkegaard, following the critiques of Hume and Kant, whom we have yet to talk about, but we will, finds that there is no conclusive evidence for the existence of God. From a standpoint of faith, it doesn't matter whether philosophers can demonstrate the existence of God. Faith is quite independent, doesn't rest on any kind of rational foundation. Far more important is what happens to the individual when he's called upon to believe that which he cannot know from any scientific source. With respect to objective matters, there's always a bit of doubt, even in our science. Very often, what is held is provisionally held. We regard science as open-ended, that what we have today may possibly be revised, if not in the whole, perhaps only in the part, but now compare that. What is important is what happens to the individual when confronted with doubt. The believer is not turned away by objective uncertainty, but he passionately affirms. Kierkegaard calls this subjective truth, now, a kind of sophomoric version of that. It's true for me. But Kierkegaard would be a bit more careful than that. Subjective truth is not truth in the usual sense. Truth being the conformity of mind with the structures of nature or human nature. Subjective truth is really faith. We can use faith as a synonym. Faith is precisely the contradiction between the infinite passion of the individual's inwardness and objective uncertainty. Inwardness triumphs objective certainty. If I am capable of grasping God objectively, I do not believe. But because I am incapable of grasping God through science or philosophy, I must believe. If I wish to preserve myself in faith, I must constantly be intent on holding fast the objective uncertainty so as to remain out upon the deep over 70,000 fathoms of water still preserving my faith. That's Kierkegaard from the concluding unscientific postscript. Now what leads one to make that leap of faith, as it were? Kierkegaard says there is a kind of spiritual growth required to make the leap of faith. 
that leap of faith which is so important to me as a human being. Again, what he means by faith is subjective conviction, I believe. Objective uncertainty, I have no compelling reason given either by science or philosophy for believing. The man who tries to believe the use of reason rather than against reason is comic. For Kierkegaard, the question that Christianity tries to answer is what does the individual, what does the subject count for? In the ultra-rationally interpreted world, he counts for nothing. He's just one among many, one of a population of 250 million. There the individual, as he tries to understand himself, finds no answer to what he is or what it means to be a subject. Kierkegaard puts his point this way. Take nature to be the totality of created things. This is the work of God. And yet God is not revealed in nature. But within the individual man, there is a potentiality which is awakened as a result of his spirituality or inwardness, which turns one toward a relationship he longs for, a relationship with God. And once that relationship is established, once you recognize that you are a child of God, then everything else changes. Christianity addresses this subjectivity, for its truth exists in that subjectivity if it exists at all. Christianity has absolutely no existence objectively, and neither has the individual person. Now, existence has to be understood here a, a bit metaphorically. So the question is not whether to accept Christianity on the basis of its objective truth. That, for Kierkegaard, is paganism. And we did find some pagans confront with Christianity and adopting it because they realized that it provided a superior viewpoint. The question is about the decision one makes in gaining faith. And since it's a pure decision on the part of the individual, no objective considerations bear upon it. In other words, faith is not a matter of belief. Now we saw with Aquinas, in faith one gives assent to things that are not available to unaided reason. But accepting those truths on faith is not an irrational act, because what is accepted through faith complements it squares with what we know to be the case from other sources. Kierkegaard is playing down what we know from other sources. We know nothing in the area of religion. We know nothing that pertains to God except when we make Christianity our inner motive for acting and thinking. Another reason is that the object of faith is not something belonging to the rational world. Well, I've already said that and Kierkegaard even uses the word absurd. Now here's a quotation that will give us some insight into his reasoning. Suppose a man wishes to acquire faith. Let the comedy begin. He wishes to have faith, but he wishes also to safeguard himself by means of an object inquiry and its approximation process. 
what happened? With the help of the approximation process, the absurd becomes something different, less than absurd. It becomes probable. It becomes increasingly probable. It becomes extremely and emphatically probable. And now he's ready to believe, and he ventures to claim for himself that he does not believe as shoemakers, tailors, simple folk believe, but only after long deliberation. Now he's ready to believe it, and lo, now it has become precisely impossible to believe it. Anything that is almost probable, or probable, or extremely and emphatically probable, is something he can almost know, but it is impossible to believe, for the absurd is the object of faith and the only object that can be believed. That's Kierkegaard. In other words, that which can be cashed into knowledge can be an object of faith. The object of faith is just that which cannot be a matter of belief in the sense of something which a little more evidence will make into knowledge. Now, our task is not to criticize Kierkegaard. There is certainly much that is true in what he is saying, and he is following, I think, the natural progression of the human mind. The emphasis on the inability of reason to discover independently of revelation basic truths very few to his time would assent to that, that is, those who are in, as it were, mainstream Christianity. Kierkegaard, we've just examined, I think carries to a logical conclusion insights which Luther and Calvin had, though they themselves did not go to the extreme that Kierkegaard has pushed their thought. We turn next to examine some philosophical that is, professionally philosophical treatments of a concept of religion. We'll look first at David Hume, and then we'll look at Immanuel Kant, both giants in the history of modern philosophy. Hume, we will find, has a certain respect for religion, Kant an even greater respect for religion. But Hume, like Kierkegaard, or Kierkegaard like Hume, if I got the chronology right, does not believe that there is any evidence for the existence of God, and yet he finds men believing. Now, how account for the fact that the race as a whole believes in God when there is no rational demonstration possible for the existence of God? Hume's treatment of religion stems out of his empiricist philosophy as a whole. Hume will reject the concept of causality as understood in classical antiquity. Same problems, ironically, that he has with reasoning to the existence of God, Hume would also have in reasoning to the existence of the unseen in modern or contemporary science. So we'll be exploring the work of two philosophers to the extent that our time permits as they reflect on the nature of religion from their particular vantage point as professional philosophers. We are about to begin our examination of the philosophy of Hume, 
David Hume insofar as it pertains to the phenomenon of religion. Hume is one of three modern giants that one has to read on the subject of religion, no matter what one's viewpoint is. The other two are Immanuel Kant and Hegel. We won't be able to go through the work of all three, but I think what Hume observes about religion is rather interesting. We were saying that Hume does not believe that there is any evidence for the existence of God that can be advanced by reason. But nevertheless, religion is a human factor that has to be accounted for. Now, I should note that though Hume was a philosopher, he is perhaps best known for his History of England. And at six volumes, it went through at least 50 editions between 1776, his death, and 1894. That's the last count I had. His work has been described as one of the best writers of scientific prose in the history of English letters. Boswell praised him as the greatest writer in Britain. The Catholic Church put all of his works on the index. Hume was brought up as a Calvinist and at a fairly early age discarded the doctrines which he had been trained in as a youth. Once he had shed his Calvinism, Religion for him was a purely external phenomena which aroused little or no response within himself. In this sense, he was an irreligious man, but he acknowledged the part played by religion in the life of humanity, and he was interested in its nature and in its power. He came to the conclusion that organized religion was far from beneficial, he even thought that religion impairs morality by encouraging people to act for motives other than love of virtue for its own sake. Religion, he found, be characterized by fanaticism, by bigotry, by intemperance. The idea of the greatness and majesty of the infinite God has encouraged emphasis on attitudes of abasement and on practices of asceticism and mortification, these ideas were foreign to a pagan past, but confronted with that analysis of religion, Hume is nevertheless willing to distinguish between true religion on the one hand and superstition and fanaticism on the other. Let us follow some of his reasoning on the subject. For Hume, the study of religion is relevant because it's a component of human nature. To understand man, it's necessary to understand man as a worshiper. Religion is part and parcel of the fabric of every civilization that we know about. Christopher Dawson once remarked that it's not the great civilizations of the world that have created the great religions of the world, rather it's the other way around. It's the great religions of the world that have created the great civilizations that we know. Hume would not deny that. Now, here we have a philosopher systematically studying religion, not uh, comment here, comment there. And he's not a theologian, obviously, because most of the authors that we have looked at have either been theologians or have made remarks in passing on the subject. Now, here is a systematic examination, but it's a systematic examination out of the philosophy 
the broader philosophy that Hume espouses, a philosophy that if we wanted to put a uh, label on it would be called empiricism. Uh, he wishes to examine topics traditionally labeled as religious in import. He wants to examine those wellsprings in human nature from which the religious attitude and its interpretation of our existence arise. Hume makes the distinction between religion and morality, which all should. He treats religion and morality in a way that asserts the independence of morality from religion. Thomas would have no problem with that. Aquinas makes that distinction himself, though in addition to moral philosophy, there is moral theology. If we know that the grave is not the end of man, then certain things take on a new meaning. But Hume will have none of that. He refuses to base the importance of religion on any supposed contribution it makes to morality. So the value of religion is not that it makes men good. The beliefs, the strivings, the practical actions of the religious man are indeed complex. These phenomena can be understood only by submitting them to an analysis in terms of one's general theory about human perception, human association, human passion. For Hume, a philosophical treatment of religion requires the orderly use of two phases of the experimental method. The language is a bit clumsy here, but the two phases is one, resolutive analysis, let's say analysis, and the other is positive synthesis, let's say synthesis. Analysis is breaking things down, synthesis is putting them back. As a complex human phenomenon, religion must be taken apart analytically, resolved into its component factors in our experience. But we need to clear up an ambiguity. One can take the religious complex to mean a body of teachings, a set of doctrines that could be put down in a catechism, and then a characteristic human outlook Sometimes religion means just that, a religious outlook quite apart from any confession. That outlook you couldn't codify into a catechism. Analysis, when applied to religious teaching, traces those teachings back to their sources and finds the source in a sustaining human attitude. Analysis then deals with the complex religious attitude itself by reducing it to certain component passional and cognitive principles. Passion is on the side of appetite, on the side of will, cognition on the side of intellect. The passions which drive one to religion are fear and hope and a what he calls a lively concern to know the causes of events affecting our human welfare. These are the roots of religion. Curiosity, fear and hope. Compositive study then provides a synthesis of the elements distinguished in order to understand them. What causes man to be religious? Well, fear, hope, and curiosity. Religion also posits a bond between man and God. What is one to do with the God pole of this relationship? 
since God is not subject to empirical investigation, you can't reason to the existence of God. Given Hume's general philosophy, God is removed in principle from investigation. What's the implication of this for a philosophical study of religion? It's not fatal for Hume. The religious attitude involves a belief about matters which fall within the realm of experience. For the most part, some matters do not. And Hume can handle even the matters which do not in the same way he handles the problem of the external world. If you begin with the mind, how is it that you can affirm the existence of structures independent of the mind? Within the limits of his philosophy of human nature, he can specify the grounds in perception which meant to believe in a powerful-minded being existing independently of ourselves. Hume is convinced that there is no other area of human experience where the passions play such an important role. The passions strongly influence our religious outlook. There are no ready-made criteria for judging the truth of religion such as is available in other disciplines. In ethics, you can check your arguments against common human sentiment. In politics, if reason collides with matters of fact, you can check the facts. But no church can provide an authoritative account of the nature of religion. So Hume must rely on his own experience. His sources or limited, but I would say adequate. He has his own religious upbringing in Scotland, particularly Edinburgh. He has observed religious conditions in France and in Britain. Hume has studied, like we have, classical Roman accounts of religions and those accounts of religions which he finds in the author Bale. He has acquaintance with tales of explorers and missionaries. He doesn't have our 20th century anthropological studies, but he has enough to talk about religion in a general way. In talking about religion, he resorts to a dialogue form. The beauty of a dialogue is you can entertain several positions at once, and you don't have to come down yourself one way or another. You can leave it out there as a discussion piece. So one of his important works are the dialogues concerning natural religion. The purpose of a philosophical dialogue is not to compound obscurity. That's what he says, often it does. But to illuminate it and to dispel shadows as much as possible. The purpose is not to wallow in uncertainty, but to recognize uncertainty, discover the basis of that uncertainty and perhaps set some limits on it. He then goes on to distinguish between a pre-analytic and a post-analytic form of obscurity and uncertainty. How do you like that? Pre-analytic and post-analytic form of obscurity and uncertainty. Even after careful analysis, he finds some post-analytic obscurity. His hope is modest, he says, merely to establish some points of orientation for understanding and evaluating man's religious life. Three problem areas he immediately recognizes. The speculative justification of religion, the moral dimension of religion, 
the relation between philosophy, religion, and faith, and between faith and divine revelation. The important questions which he wants to address are religion's foundation in reason and its origins in human nature. His book, The Natural History of Religion, is devoted mainly to religion's origin in human nature, the dialogues to its foundation in reason. By human nature, he is referring to the passional side of man. His analysis reveals this. Religion is a response to a situation. Then he asked, is this passional response instinctive or derivative? If it's a primary impulse, such as self-love, Another primary impulse would be gravity. You can't do anything about it. Self-love, you can't do anything about that, assuming normalcy. Then, if religion is like self-love, it can't be avoided. It's analytically irreducible. It might figure as an explanation of other phenomena, but it could not itself be subject to any penetrating analysis. On analysis, Hume comes to the conclusion that religion is not primitive in that sense. It's not a primary impulse, it's a composite, it's a derived aspect of our passional life. And he'll relate that in an interesting way to other things. If religion were a primary impulse and analytically irreducible, nothing could be done about it. It would be an irreformable tendency of man without a history and without the possibility of being reformed. The first religious principles, he says, must be secondary, such as may be easily perverted by various accidents and causes, and whose operation too, in some cases, may by an extraordinary concurrence of circumstances be altogether prevented. I think what he's saying here is that religion really is a social phenomenon. Religion springs from passional tendencies which themselves are basic, fear, hope, curiosity. These are permanent and pervasive among the race. Hence, religion can be said to be natural to mankind. But this carries with it no conviction, no guarantee about the human worth and soundness of religious conviction. The human heart is notorious for yielding both good and bad. In primitive man, religion clearly is the child of fear and hope. It rests probably, most basically, on fear, that is, upon a concern about the uncertainty and fragility of human existence. This is not stark fear, not terror, but it has a certain imaginative and meditative dimension suited to an enduring condition. It's not the fright we may experience when the door slams. It's a kind of unconscious, permanent attitude or outlook. This fear involves a conception of natural events as being the manifestation of an unseen power, a power driven in some fashion by purpose, that there is an invisible, intelligent power in the world 
is a belief common to all religions. And from this belief follows another, namely that man can relate himself to a presence which is invisible, mindful, and powerful. We saw that even in the Stoic philosophers. Prayer was not inconsequential. Hume, then, will make much of a distinction between popular religious belief and speculative theology. The popular religious attitude cannot rest originally on a speculative theism. Popular religion is not the fruit of theology. The dependence is the other way around. Our propensity to believe in a religious way is aroused by the passions, in the plural, and is directed toward the many sorts of events and forces which powerfully affect our existence. Hence, the primary religious outlook is apt to be polytheistic. Monotheism occurs later as a refinement. Intelligence is brought to bear, is operative in forming our fundamental religious response, but it's not primary. Men are never led to religion by a process of argument. Now, I think that's false, and I intend to show it later on. Popular religion arises out of the materials furnished by those basic passions, fear and hope. It is definitely not based on philosophical argument, certainly not on the argument from design or the argument that reaches first efficient cause of being. Man comes to religion under the pressure of deep-seated tendencies. Sheer recognition of power in the world is not enough to constitute the religious attitude. A threefold response must occur. Let's look at that. Recognition of power independent of nature. Men must relate themselves to that power as agents through some sort of practical striving and not merely as theoretical observers. There has to be a relation of self to the unseen. That relationship must be suffused with a personal quality. The superior power has been given a personal force, has been made into a person. The development of the religious attitude requires, thirdly, men to feel deeply the tension between affirming a superior power beyond nature and seeking to relate oneself practically to it. If you believe in God, this has implications. Religious striving must be practical and personally ordered, but it must contain a certain strain of transcendence. And monotheism provides all of that. It provides a superior, concerned, powerful reality which is imminent in the world but not as a component of nature, personal and one, somehow transcending the limited configuration of sensible things. Man constantly searches for a surpassing and permanent good, a restless quest of a human soul for a consummately powerful good, present in the processes of life, and yet surpassing all the goods of the visible world. And then, once that religious outlook is possessed, then one begins to use that religious outlook as one attempts to understand other things. We said earlier that Hume made a distinction between religion and morality. 
He's convinced that the separation of religion and morality can be achieved without injury to man's nature and to the order of values. Religion and morality are distinct and even disparate in their respective bases and ultimate references, their motivations and consequences for existence. They are distinct in all of that. Morality cannot afford to wait. This is the insight that I really wanted to convey. Morality, he says, cannot afford to wait upon the efforts of natural theology. Man must have some commonly available principles and grounds for moral judgment. That would seem to put him in a position to appreciate a kind of natural law outlook in morality, but his empiricism would render the adoption of that outlook impossible. Hume argues with some of his contemporaries, and I must say that his interest in religion is not nihilistic in the sense that a contemporary Holbach criticized religion. Holbach was under the impression that once you perform the kind of analysis which Hume does and you show religion for what it really is, human invention, and you have dissuaded people from believing that they can reason to the existence of God, then religion should shrivel up and disappear. But Hume's own experience runs counter to that prediction. For Hume, one's ascent to God's reality may be deprived of many of its customary supports, but it still is there to be reckoned with. Its persistence may be taken as a sign of the totally non-cognitive basis of religion. But that's not all that he's saying. He says even the sophisticated inquiry about the orderly aspects of the natural world, believing that they represent the powerful presence of a transcendent mind, the sophisticated believer will not claim that he has demonstrative or scientific knowledge of God, but he will recognize some ground for believing man formed then by Hume's philosophy of nature cannot remain either an untroubled dogmatist or an untroubled skeptic. Hume will give a cautious, highly qualified assent to the religious reference in human life. And the way this works out in practice, in meditation upon the order the nature of the universe. One is not led to affirm the existence of God, but one is nevertheless put into a kind of pious mode, a kind of interiority which leads one to further introspection. Thus, Hume. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.